I invite you to turn to the fifth chapter of Galatians, chapter 5. We're going to read the verses 1 through 15 together. Galatians 5, the verses 1 through 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And this morning we will be focusing on the verses 7 through 12 of what we just read. And as always, you're encouraged to keep your Bibles open as we go through the text together. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the year was 2021. It was near the end of June, summer in France. 184 cyclists had just left at 6 a.m. to start the first stage of the Tour de France. Suddenly, a lady leaned into the road in front of them. She had her back turned to the cyclists. She was facing the cameras and she held up a sign, a cardboard sign that said, Go, Opa and Oma, in French. But she leaned too far into the road. One of the cyclists hit her sign. He lost his balance and fell. 
And because these cyclists are packed so close together, almost everyone behind him fell as well. It turned into possibly the biggest Tour de France pileup ever. 26 riders were injured. Four of them didn't finish the stage. One had both arms broken. Now, there was a great deal of public outrage over this incident, as you can imagine. These cyclists had been racing well. And now, because of the actions of one self-centered person who wanted her sign to be seen on national television, some of them might not even finish the race anymore. Now, it is that sense of outrage that comes through in our text as well. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Galatia. And as you know, Galatia back then was a, a, a Roman province that overlapped roughly with what we now know as Turkey. The Apostle Paul had brought the gospel there during his first missionary journey. But by the time he wrote this letter, the churches had been infected by false teachers called Judaizers. And they'd been hard at work destroying the faith of these new converts. And that's what makes Paul so angry. We get some of that anger, that rage showing through in this text. And what made these false teachers so particularly dangerous was that they seemed to be Christians themselves. But what they taught was not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They taught if you wanted to be right with God, then you have to keep the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the civil and ceremonial laws surrounding it, including the requirement for men to be circumcised. Now, it may be that you are visiting here um, for the first time. It's even possible that this is your very first time ever in a free Reformed church, or maybe you're listening in on the live video feed. Uh, we, we do have people from quite a few countries that, that listen to the sermons afterwards. And, and so you're listening in, and maybe you thought that being a Christian actually mean, means that you have to keep all of those rules, or at least the Ten Commandments. We heard the Ten Commandments already this morning, and maybe you think that a Christian is someone who keeps the Ten Commandments. And it is true that a Christian is someone who keeps the Ten Commandments, but keeping the Ten Commandments is not what makes you a Christian. A Christian is a, a someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He took on a human nature. He lived a perfect life on earth, and he died on a cross to save sinners from the judgment of God. And all those who put their faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins are saved from the wrath of God. Anyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of all their sins. And this is the gospel. So the Ten Commandments come afterwards. They show you, now that you're a Christian, they show you how to live as a Christian, how to reflect the character of God in your life. But keeping the Ten Commandments is not what makes you a Christian. It never has been. And that's what the false teachers got wrong. They basically said you need to clean up your own life first and, and then you put yourself under the law and then you belong to God's people. In other words, you're saved by grace plus your own works. 
And that's not the gospel. True salvation is only by Christ alone, through faith alone. It's all or nothing. And it's never been any other way. In fact, earlier in this letter, Paul wrote that anyone who preaches a different gospel is accursed. That means he stands under the eternal condemnation of God. That person is damned. That person is going to hell. Why? Because he has taught a false gospel. And a false gospel cannot save you. Your own efforts cannot save you. Salvation is by grace and by grace alone. Now this message is never popular. Our idea of Christianity is a little bit like a church picnic. When you go to a church picnic, everyone brings along a dish. Most people don't want to show up empty-handed. So, th- so this idea that you have to contribute something to your own salvation comes to us very naturally. It's hardwired into us. It runs really deep. And that's why our text this morning is so surprising. Because in our text, Paul expresses his frustration at these false teachers again. But then he says that he's confident that the Galatian Christians will agree with him. Hey, you, get this, you get this text with all of this, this pent-up frustration in it, and then in the middle, he's suddenly confident. You saw that, right? I have confidence, verse 10, in the Lord, that you will take no other view. He's confident. How can he be so confident? Because the gospel is good news. It's not just a good argument. It's good news. The good news of salvation. And salvation is not just what you receive when you're saved. Salvation is that God holds on to you through your whole life. God holds on to his people. And so the confidence of God's people must always be in the Lord himself. That's also how we approach this text this morning, that the confidence of the Lord's people must be in the Lord himself. That's the the, the summary, the bottom line. And then as we look at it more closely, we'll see that it breaks down into two ideas, confidence that he will preserve them in the truth and confidence that he will punish the peddlers of falsehood. So look at this opening verse, verse 7, that manages to be encouraging and admonishing all at the same time. It's encouraging first because it points, Paul points them to what uh, these people did before. They were running well, he says to them. And he's using the analogy of the Christian life as a race. It's an analogy often used in other places in the New Testament. And, and so just this first verse, this first sentence already reminds us of the power of the gospel. The Galatians believed. They were running well. You think about how amazing this is. These people came from a totally heathen background. They had no idea who Jesus was. They lived in a, a, a culture, and they were fully immersed in a culture full of rampant promiscuity, immorality, homosexuality, a culture where uh, child abandonment was a thing. Uh, abortion was also a common thing. Um, a culture actually very, very much like ours in many ways. And they knew no other life. And then Paul comes and he preaches the gospel to them, and they believed And he didn't convince them, he didn't persuade them by all sorts of lofty oratory. He never used flattery, he says that in other places. He just came and he explained the gospel to them normally. In a normal voice, 
And these people heard the gospel and, and they believed it was a work of the Holy Spirit. They, they went from being heathens in this culture to actually forming multiple churches together. And we should never stop being amazed at how the gospel does this every time and has done this for thousands of years all over the world. It's an incredible thing that that just happens, that the Holy Spirit just does that, that we're actually just here this morning. But at the same time, there's admonishment, isn't there? They were running well, but they were running well. Not anymore. Some of them aren't running at all. There's a a hidden admonishment in there, and also a reminder that the life of faith is is not a sprint. The life of faith is a marathon. We don't always realize that. We treat it like a sprint sometimes. We're willing to put in a good effort initially. But how committed are we to the long haul? He who endures to the end will be saved. It takes time to learn to run with the Lord. And the Galatians were off to a good start, but they're not running anymore. Paul says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? And it's, it's, it's a rhetorical question. The point is that the person who who interrupted them, actually was hindering them from running the race of faith. Just like that lady with her cardboard sign who brought down an entire cohort, an entire peloton of the, of, um, the Tour de France. So these false teachers had hindered them from progressing any further. And that also shows us how subtle their message was. You know, the devil is behind this. He's the master of disguises. He is so good at what he does. He's had thousands and thousands of years to practice his craft. You should never underestimate him. He's an angel, pro- promotes himself as an angel of light. And, and these Galatians, they came from the heathen religion of, of their youth. They, they knew what that was. They didn't want anything to do with it. As we say here, they wouldn't have a bar of it. But this false teaching that seemed so much like the gospel that they'd heard and which came with this, this Jewish pedigree, that was something else. That's what made it so confusing. They thought they were closer to God by doing this, but they actually weren't even obeying the truth anymore. And that's also interesting, hey, that he uses this phrase, obeying the truth. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What does that phrase mean? Well, to obey the truth simply means to believe the gospel of grace. And this is a command. The word obey implies a command. Faith is a gift, but it's a command as well. Faith never comes in isolation from the rest of your life. Scripture knows of no Christians who profess Christ, but live as unbelievers. These are not real Christians. So, it's a command to believe. It's a command to respond in, in faith to the gospel and then a command also to live accordingly. Genuine faith will always express itself in works. That is implied, for example, in Romans 2 verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You see, obey the truth. Those who do not obey the truth will receive wrath and fury. Romans 6 verse 17 You who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 and 8 says that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven 
with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not, wait for it, do not obey the gospel of of our Lord Jesus. So the truth is not just to be considered as one option among many. No, it is to be obeyed. It is sin to reject the gospel or to modify it in any way. And so what happened to the Galatians is not just a tragedy, it is also disobedience. And Paul is putting that to them in no uncertain terms. In verse 8, Paul writes, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. This persuasion, verse 8, is not from him who calls you. And actually, there's a shared um, um, root between these two words, obeying and persuasion. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And that word persuasion is interesting. See, the Galatians think that they're doing the right thing. They never, meant for, for, they never meant to be disobedient to the Lord. They're, they're sincere, they're devout, unlike these false teachers, but they're completely wrong. And you know, that, that's sobering too, isn't it? It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Think about that. If you're sincere and you believe or teach a false gospel, you are just as certain to go to hell as if you are sincere and have no gospel. No one has ever been saved from the judgment of God by their sincerity. You are not saved by sincerity. You are only ever saved by the blood of Christ. That's the only way you can escape the wrath of God. Everything else is a dead end. It doesn't matter how sincere you are, how spiritual you seem, how confident you feel, There's only one true gospel. And if you don't have that, you are not saved. Now, maybe this seems over the top to you. You might think that a little bit of false doctrine should not matter so much. But Paul says, look, you know this from daily life. Think about leaven. Everybody knows about leaven In the past, people used to take a piece of dough from last night's batch and mix it into the new batch, and that was their starter. Today, people generally use yeast instead because it's faster, unless they're into sourdough. But the idea is the same. Once you work the leaven or the yeast into the flour, eventually it affects the whole batch. And that happens to false doctrine as well. False doctrine is not just an isolated issue. Just like leaven eventually affects a whole batch, so false doctrine will eventually corrupt the whole church. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Paul uses leaven as an image of the spreading of sin. And here in our passage, it's an image of false doctrine. If you say you love the gospel, but you want to add your own works, you've rejected it. You've actually rejected the gospel. Why? Because grace is what makes the gospel the gospel. As soon as you add your own works, even if it's only a very small amount, then grace stops being grace. Then the gospel stops being the gospel. And it actually means that you don't love God. No matter how devout you might seem, you don't love God. Why? Because how can you say that you love God, but then reject his gospel or try to change it? 
It's, it's stark if you put it that way, isn't it? Now, where does it end? If you start adding your own works, how, how many works are enough works? That's a problem with Roman Catholicism too, isn't it? How many good works are enough to make you acceptable in the sight of God? To prevent you from entering purgatory as, as they believe? How much is enough? But to trust completely can be frightening. It means that you don't that you completely don't rely on yourself anymore. That means completely trusting in the sufficiency of Christ and His work. Sometimes what, what holds us back from full commitment in our minds is a hidden fear. There's a fear buried in the very deepest recesses of our consciousness. Fear. And that fear makes us want to do things, whatever they might be, to please God and to make ourselves more acceptable to Him. There's no thing in all this world more difficult to accept than true, unconditional love. Especially from someone who knows you unconditionally, as the Lord does. Yet Paul refers to God as him who calls you. Did you notice that? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And there's a subtle reminder in there. That word calls is a beautiful word. It puts emphasis on the work of God. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, calls him. And this verse hints back at that great truth. It hints back at God's grace. It reminds us that God takes the initiative in any act of faith. It reminds us that God, that we depend on God completely, not only to save us, but even to generate faith in that salvation in the first place. We believe that theologically, but do you believe it in practice? Today's Mother's Day, a day to recognize our mother's and to show our love to them. But it's hard to be a mom sometimes. It's particularly hard to be a young mom these days. Think about all the pressure on a mother, even at the best of times. She has to get everything right. She has to make sure that the kids are always clothed, and they're always fed. And sometimes she has to do that on a tight budget. And at the same time, when you turn to the internet for help, there are all sorts of websites that tell you what you should feed your children. It has to be certain kinds of food or how you should run your household. This is what I do and look at my house. And meanwhile, you're still trying to get caught up on cleaning and laundry. It's hard work. And it's not that they don't want to. But at the same time, there are many mums, especially young mums, who feel like they're never on top of it all, and it leads to feelings of guilt. And then there's a sense of pressure from the world as well that you, you, 
have to get into the workplace because the world thinks just being a mom is not good enough. Where's all this pressure coming from? Yes, it can be from circumstances, but, but those circumstances are no different in a way from what our, our ancestors went through when they raised their children. So why do we find it so difficult sometimes? There's a pressure not mainly from within, from this idea that you can't possibly, this fear maybe, that you can't possibly live up to the standard of being a perfect mom and a perfect wife. And if you don't live up to that standard, that you're a bad mom and maybe even a bad Christian. Is that what it is? And if so, where is this guilt coming from? It's not, it's not coming from here. Not from Scripture. Scripture says you already measure up because you are already perfect in Christ. You will never be more perfect in the eyes of God than you are at this very moment, mothers. And for the rest, you serve and love. You do what you can to the best of your ability. Well, yeah, maybe there are places where you could be more efficient. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're already running at 100%, 110%. But that's not where it's at. You serve and love, and you do. Guilt doesn't belong in that picture. Guilt is an opportunity for the flesh. When we think of the flesh, we think of immorality and things like that. It's always this, this sexual thing in our mind. But when Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about all of our sinful human nature. The flesh is a sinful nature, and there is a kind of guilt that appeals to the flesh. The flesh is proud. The flesh wants to measure up to others, and it does not use Scripture as its standard. And you can be certain if you feel guilt, that's not going to come from Scripture. That's going to come from comparing with others and from the stuff that you read and from feeling that you should or could do more. It compares in all kinds of other factors. But here is a question for you. Where is faith in all of that? What does faith have to do with that? Do you mothers believe that you were called by God to a life of faith? If you do, there's no need for guilt. And men, where are you in this? Are you encouraging your wives to live this life of faith? Are you encouraging them in their faith life? Because if you do, they will flourish in love. A wife who is motivated by guilt is a wife who will always feel down on herself. On herself. But a wife who is motivated by the gospel will serve out of love because she understands that the only standard that matters has already been met by Christ himself. There is no other. Everything else is love. If God is the one who calls us, he's also the one who preserves us. And we should remember this when we think about the church as well. Sometimes we think it all depends on us. We think if we're not the gatekeepers in the church, we'll perish and we look at the world around us and we think, if we're parents, we think, this is the world I'm raising my children in. And, and people worry tremendously. And they see these secular influence sometimes influencing the church. And it is true that vigilance is important. But the survival of the church as such does not depend on us. As soon as we start thinking that way, we are discounting the preserving power of God. 
If God really is the one who calls you, like it says here, if he put you in this church, don't you think that he can preserve you as an individual, but also you collectively as church? That's why Paul writes in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. I have confidence in the Lord. It's not confidence in the Galatians. They've already shown there's not a whole lot there to be confident of. But Paul has suddenly changed his tone in the middle of this passage because he's confident in the Lord. And that should be our confidence too as God's people. The confidence of the Lord's people must always be in the Lord himself. We need to be confident that God preserves us in the truth. And we can be sure of that because we're confident in his love. We're confident in the faithfulness of Christ. Confident that God preserves his own. But because of that very confidence, we can also be sure that he will punish all those who interfere with his people. He will punish the peddlers of falsehood. I'll pay attention to that next. The Galatians had the true gospel. They had the joy that comes with faith, but now they're troubled. The beauty of the gospel in its, in its appeal to us, um, part of that depends on, it hinges on certainty. That's the beauty of faith. The, the beauty of faith is that you can be certain that things are right between you and God. And that certainty has been taken away from them. So now they're not sure anymore, these Galatians. Consider then how severe the punishment must be of those who bring doubt into the hearts of God's people. Paul writes about that in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And we should see that for what it is. The word penalty here is actually not a great translation because when we hear the word penalty, what do you think about? Soccer, right? Penalty, you get a penalty shot on the goal. So for us, the framework of that word doesn't reflect the seriousness of what the, the Greek is trying to say. A better translation that you'll find in some other translations is the word judgment. He who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. That is... The judgment of God, that means to be damned by God. It means to face the anger of his wrath against lies and falsehood for all of eternity in the fires of hell. That's what that word means. And if we feel resistance against this, that's because we still don't understand what is actually at stake here and how seriously God takes this. In verse 11, Paul refers to circumcision. Here, circumcision is used as a form of metonymy. And if, you're, if you've uh, taken catechism with me, then you know that metonymy is a word that represents something else that is closely related to it. So circumcision here represents not just the physical act of cutting off the foreskin, but it represents all of law-keeping associated with that. And in that sense, circumcision is utterly opposed to the cross. That's why in verse 11, he refers to the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive. It is profoundly offensive. It will always be offensive. There is no way that you can make the cross 
not be offensive when it's understood for what it is. Because it leaves human beings with no merit whatsoever to hold on to. Circumcision stands for human achievement. Even human religious achievement. The cross stands for God's achievement. The cross excludes circumcision. The one excludes the other. You cannot have both the gospel and works. They are mutually exclusive. So these false teachers have excluded others from the gospel by roping them into their teachings. That's what's at stake. And what's even worse, and actually quite bizarre, is that they tried to imply that Paul agreed with them. Look at verse 11. If you read this verse, it's obvious he's responding to something. It's obvious that he's denying that he still preaches circumcision. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Clearly, he would not have felt the urge to write this unless there were people there who were saying that he was preaching circumcision. Now, it is true that he did before his conversion. As a fanatic Pharisee, uh, he would have been all over this. And even after his conversion, he was not opposed to the physical practice itself. We know that from Scripture. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So he's not against the... um, Circumcision itself, whether you are or are not, is in a sense irrelevant, he says. Um, But he's fanatic against circumcision as a requirement for salvation. With all the works righteousness that that entailed, he utterly rejected that. And we see how much he rejected in verse 12. He suddenly shocks us. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And in other words, I wish they wouldn't just cut off the foreskin, but cut off the rest of their private parts as well. That's what he's saying. Now you should realize he's not just being crass here. He's not being crass for the sake of shock value. He is probably alluding to a heathen cult that would have been known to the people of those days. It was the cult of Cybele. Cybele was a heathen goddess who was accompanied in their religion by Attis. And according to the myth, Attis had died, and he was raised again. So there's a resurrection mythology there. Very different, though, from uh, uh, the Christian resurrection in terms of its intent and purposes. This was heathen. Um, He had died, and he had come back to life again. And um, every year, the priests of Addis would reenact this as part of a ritual. The worshipers would reenact this, and the priests, in the climax of their worship, would cut off their own private parts. Now, obviously, this would have been incoming priests, because you can only do this once. But they did this every year. And you might think to yourself, whoa, That sounds really messed up. Well, here's the pot calling the kettle black. 
We live in a, our culture is no better. Gender-confused people have their own private parts surgically cut off. Whether you cut off your private parts to satisfy a heathen God, or whether you have them surgically cut off in order to satisfy your own sense of self-integration, either way you've cut off your private parts, right? The net, the net result is the same. And we notice more and more that there's very little difference between our culture today and this culture 2,000 years ago. In both cases, it's this destructive, demonic behavior. That's what it is. So why is Paul saying this now? He's basically insinuating that these Judaizers, these false teachers with their insistence on circumcision, are no better than these heathen priests who cut their private parts off in the devotion of another god. Why? Because in both cases, they're completely separated from Christ. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, God says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So Paul is taking this idea, um, which is already very old, and connecting it to circumcision, and he's suggesting that these false teachers, therefore, do not belong in the presence of God's assembly either. That's his point. That's what he's hinting at. And you cannot possibly imagine how incredibly offensive this would have sounded to these false teachers who would have probably been there when this letter was read in Galatia. But, you know, Paul's point is that there's only one circumcision that belongs in the church. That is the circumcision of Christ. In Colossians 2 verse 11, Paul brings out what circumcision ultimately really pointed to. He writes, in him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I'll read it one more time. It's a pretty dense quote. In Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, Christ himself was also circumcised, as all Jewish boys were, but he was not just circumcised. When he died on the cross, he was cut off altogether. Someone who was circumcised only had a piece of skin taken away. Christ had his life taken away. Circumcision in the Old Testament represented the taking away of sin, and it also represented the renewal of the heart and belonging to God. And all of those things are promised to us in baptism as well. God promises cleansing. He promises us renewal. He promises us belonging. All those things are promised to us, and they become ours when we respond with faith. That's the circumcision of Christ. To receive forgiveness and in Him to be stripped of our old nature forever. 
To belong to his people forever. To be in his presence forever. That is the only circumcision that matters. And it's his work from start to finish. And when you have that, then you have confidence. And then your confidence is in the Lord. And it will never be shaken because it doesn't depend on you. Then you can be confident that he will preserve us in all the truth and keep us from all falsehood. Do you have that confidence? Amen.